Friends fight about fantastic films. I thought we were can't keep funny the names. Did we change the name. Yeah, a podcast. We're trying to get listeners, and you keep changing it. It's not even this, funny. Confusing people. Yeah, this, that's, yeah. <laughs> this is a podcast about movies and things more important than movies. If we ever find any, mm-hmm. um, we like to think of ourselves as fairly funny guys. Maybe uh, more well, than fairly. Like to, yeah. So today we'll be picking our top three funniest. Movies, yes. the ones that make us laugh, or R O F L, if you will. Nope. To kick us off, say your name and tell us your favorite joke, Gibby. So this is uh, Kyle K G Gibson. <laughs> <laughs> Hadn't heard that one before. It's a new one. Gibby Gabo uh, Congo. My favorite joke. <laughs> what do you call a blind dinosaur? Do you think he saw us? What do you call a blind dinosaur's uh, dog? Do you think he saw us, Rex? You're such a Jurassic Park fan. Yeah. Wow. Lance, favorite joke? This was a bit I remember hearing a comedian say. It's not really a joke in the traditional sense, but he said, uh, my brother-in-law is a civil engineer. I'm not really sure what that is, but I think it means if the North and South <laughs> ever clash again, he gets to drive the train. That always cracked me up. <laughs> yeah. I like funny. that one. Who can we credit that to? I don't know. I don't no. I can't remember what his name was. Joke. You should That's just depressing. take credit. Just say you made it up. Here's a joke that. I made up. He's probably listening. Uh Jordan. My name is Jordan. My dad told me this joke when I was in elementary school. It's got to be good, then. It's got to be. I told it at an event in elementary school, and I got in trouble for it. Ooh, dirty joke. Yes, very dirty. How do you tell Ronald McDonald from all the other people on a nude beach? (laughs) (laughs) I love this setup. Is there an answer? Of course there's an answer. He's got sesame seed buns. <laughs> Were you like in a talent show? <laughs> no, it was like a camp, like a camping sleep. That was yeah. weird. That's I was hoping good. it'd be like a really dirty, like, <laughs> yeah. because his <laughs> is painted like a clown. <laughs> like, it's not even funny. It's just like, oh, gosh. <laughs> oh, my favorite. I'm Hudson. My favorite joke. Pirate walks into a bar with a steering wheel attached to his crotch. Mm. Mm. The bartender mm. says, hey, buddy, did you know you had a steering wheel attached to your crotch? And he, the pirate goes, arg, I know it's driving me nuts. Yeah. <laughs> like, is that really your favorite joke? I freaking love that joke. It, it is a great joke. I, I just... You guys don't think that joke's I, funny? I've just heard it it's a lot of times. No, it's, uh, you know, it, it is what it is. I flipped the first time I heard that joke. <laughs> you did <laughs> like a whole flip. This was like a couple of years ago. That's how you can know when Hudson likes funny jokes. He does an actual backflip. <laughs> During yeah. the podcast, it's just flip after <laughs> flip. <laughs> All right, we asked you guys on Facebook and Twitter for the movies that make you laugh the most. This is Jennifer Hester Hall. Oh, gosh. I almost hate to say this, but Joe Dirt, that's dirty. I mean, it's redneck for us. God. <laughs> that's supposed to be JFK. That's the worst joke. <laughs> that is easily the worst joke ever. Heard. It's like super effeminate weird. Oh. Sounded- <laughs> it sounded like Valley Girl JFK. Yeah. yeah, that's what I thought it was. I thought it sounded like that Will Ferrell bit where he did like the monotonous Not voice he does. Yeah. yeah. Uh, <laughs> 
But not to take away from Jennifer Hester Hall's point here, Joe Dirt is extremely funny. I've never seen Joe Dirt. I, guess, I haven't which, seen it in years. It's it's funny. Is yeah. it? Yeah. Now, Dear Tay, is that some sort of uh, joke from the movie? I believe it is. Dear yeah. Tay. Gibby, take this last one. Best in show. <laughs> already Three laughing. words. Three, Three words. A new record. And you didn't even say the person's yeah. name. <laughs> Sorry, let's start over. This is, this is Casey Barnett. Best in show. I've lost count how many times I've watched this. It just kills me every time. It's Christopher Best, guest, best work. And, and, not, and not that I need to say this, because that was obviously Peter Lorre. It sounded exactly like it. It yeah. sounded like E.T. Mexican E.T. <laughs> I'm not sure I've ever heard Peter Lorre talk. I don't know why I'm doing an impression of a dude I've never heard talk. Oh, my gosh. That was good. <laughs> Hispanic E.T. I'm doing the rest oh, of the show. man. I also, I've never seen someone as amused by their own impression. <laughs> he could entertain himself all day. I do. But I agree with KC that Christopher Guest's best work is best in show. I disagree. I agree. I, agree, I disagree. Guest. Well, we might, we maybe we'll get to it. If you want your favorites right on the show, you can leave your comments at facebook.com slash fightaboutfilm or at fightaboutfilm on Twitter. All right. How'd you go about picking your funniest movies? Was it hard? Easy? I tried to think of movies that made me laugh. Mm-hmm. Oh, good. That's a good criteria. Mm-hmm. And that was, that was just, approach. but that was only, that was just the starting point. Like not movies that make you cry nope. or well, um, cry laughing, make you angry sure. or scared or angry laugh. <laughs> the three funniest movies that I've ever seen are on today's show. In my opinion, these are the three wow. movies that made me laugh. But and not all ones that you picked. They aren't all ones that I picked because somebody else picked one of my yeah. top three. How but, rude. Yeah, it was Hudson. Um, <laughs> but I think that these are... Gotta be fast. I just picked movies that were funny. I didn't try to do anything obscure. Maybe we can do another episode of Gibby and Hudson pick obscure comedies while Jordan Lance pick obscure comedies. That'll be the day. Yeah. Obscure comedy? <laughs> I don't know. Yeah. So, Obscure-tastic. So, I mean, that because hmm. I, I, there are some lesser-known comedies, but mine are all pretty three big. They just make me laugh. Yeah, yeah I, mine, mine I, are pretty big, too. I picked a pretty big one there, Gibby. Yeah. Uh, this was actually pretty hard for me. I haven't really watched funny movies in... I don't know, 15 years. Well, you're not, not a funny guy. On. No, I'm not funny. And I don't <laughs> like funny. It's not true. Comedy is a genre that, as weird as it might sound, I don't really love. Yeah. Just movies don't make me laugh out loud. No. Often. Not. Yeah. But <laughs> this this was not that tough. A, it, this is kind of, it was kind of paradoxical in a way because on, on, on the one hand, this wasn't a hard list to put together. On the other hand, I feel like we could do three more episodes of Funniest and I could quickly pull oh, sure. right. other yeah. movies. Yeah, it would have been interesting to step back and look at the personalities behind these films because I felt like there are some comedy legends that we did not include here. Marx Brothers. A big one for um, me is Jerry Lewis. Uh, some of the silent guys that would be really great. Like Silent yeah. Bob? <laughs> <laughs> no, yeah, like the Marx Brothers. We don't have any Marx Brothers movies. Yeah. The one that I generally think of is like one of the five funniest movies I've ever seen is Spinal Tap. Easily. And, and But we talked about it we last season. And we right. kind of talked about the comedy aspect of it, so I didn't pick it for this list. But yeah, you know, if at some point we do comedy part two, comedy part three, there will definitely be a lot of great movies still to choose from. I'm going to kick us off oh, this yeah. week. My number three funniest film is Meet the Parents. The 2000 film starring Ben Stiller and Robert De Niro, a great showcase for both actors. Stiller seems to favor playing kind of wacky characters, but I like him best when he's just being Stiller. In Meet the Parents, he gets to be his Stillerist. His, 
most I think still. most still, yeah. It's definitely <laughs> the way you're still. supposed very to say still. that. <laughs> very still in this movie. Um, Stiller plays Greg Fokker, a male nurse. Oh, what? You're going to have to beep that <laughs> Hudson. But use a silent beep. A male nurse who plans on asking his girlfriend to marry him, but before he gets a chance, he's swept away to her parents to attend her sister's wedding and to ask her dad, Jack played by Robert De Niro, for permission. The movie works so well because it's such a universal ideal. No matter what side you're on, everyone fears meeting the parents for the first time, and every father fears letting his daughter go. And they are constantly at odds. Greg is Jewish. Her family is Protestant. Greg is a male nurse. Jack is an ex-CIA agent. Greg is a dog guy. Jack is a cat guy. Greg smokes, has premarital sex, and has smoked weed. All things he has to hide in order to be accepted by this family. He's a good guy. He's just unfair judged. All he wants is her family's acceptance, and there's something so relatable about that. I feel like I've been in so many of these situations before, like when Greg comes down in the morning in his PJs and the entire extended family is already up and dressed. They're trying to get in on an inside joke and it falling flat. Having to borrow clothes that you wouldn't normally wear. Meeting these sound really embarrassing for you. My life is pretty much a string of <laughs> <So> embarrassment <laughs> moments. You know, meeting the perfect ex-boyfriend in a hilarious performance by Owen Wilson in this film. It's beautiful. So, yeah. so what got you into uh, carpentry? Carpentry? I guess I'd have to say Jesus. He was a carpenter, and I just figured if you're going to follow in someone's footsteps, who better than Christ? And especially the volleyball scene where the family is overly mm. competitive, which yeah. I feel like I've been in that situation so mm. many times. Glenn, 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 come here. You got to rush the net on defense. Don't be afraid of the ball. Oh, it's Greg. Huddle up, team. Huddle up. Come Greg, on. not Glenn. Greg is afraid of the ball. Every scenario is just pitch perfect, and they really milk each joke for all it's worth, assuming it has nipples. Huh. Oh, I see what you did uh, there. Because yeah, there's a that's joke. Clever. There is. Yeah. Yeah, mine from the movie. Huh. huh. Little, little cool. This is a great pick. At the end of the aughts, the 2000 to 2010, I was trying to form a list of my favorite movies of the decade. You were really bored. <laughs> <laughs> well, you I tried to get you to do it, and you're like, you're a dork. I was like, I'm not bored. <laughs> yeah. I did it with you, Gibby. Thanks, Jordan. Or Hudson. <laughs> <laughs> or whatever. Okay. Or whatever. I whatever. <laughs> Whatever sentient being is sitting at this table. Yeah, you didn't even ask me, Gibby. Uh, came really close to making my list because it's, I mean, it's a really funny movie and it's a good movie. When this came out, I hadn't laughed that hard in the theater in a very, very long time. I, I think this is a really interesting movie because it's definitely in De Niro's second era, uh-huh. which I yeah. think is largely thought of as inferior to the first era. <laughs> sure. But this is an example of the sort of new De Niro that really works. I mean, he's great in this. Yeah. Really, really funny. It just hasn't worked in most other times he's tried it. <laughs> this is such a rehashed idea, but it just mm-hmm. works so well. I remember when I heard it was coming out, it was like, oh, okay, another guy at odds with the new family movie. Right. On the surface, but if someone just describes yeah, it, it sounds like a bad like rom-com. It didn't seem like it'd be good at all, and then it was fantastic. That I, I talked about how I don't really laugh out loud in movies very much that prayer he gives oh yeah (laughs) and we thank you oh sweet sweet lord of hosts for the smorgasbord you have so aptly lain at our table this day and each day by day day by day by day oh Dear Lord, three things we pray. To love thee more dearly, to see thee more clearly, to follow thee more nearly, 
day by day. By day. Amen. Amen. For people who are fans of Curb Your Enthusiasm, this movie reminds me of that in a lot of ways where it's this guy who is like kind of just trying to do the right thing and he just gets these, everything gets screwed up. And and not only, he's not only the funny one, but the people around him and how they overreact to things. There's a lot I didn't know about this movie until kind of researching it for tonight. For one, the movie was originally made in 1992 on a super low budget. The film never found a distributor and the filmmaker sold the rights to Universal to be remade years later. Jim Carrey was once attached to star with Steven Spielberg directing. Wow. What? what? I know. Um, also, Soderbergh was uh, attached at some point. That could have been great. Yeah, I don't know. Both neither of those directors fit this material, so I'm wondering what they saw on it. I think it would have just would have been a lot different. Carrie is the one who came up with the last name Fokker, which is the best running gag in the film, in my opinion. It makes it it makes every every scene funnier. Yeah. All right, Gibby, number three from 1992, Wayne's World Party Party Time. time. Excellent. Excellent. Remember how they do that Uh, in the movie? Yeah, yeah, yeah. yeah. (laughs) Yeah, I remember. This is directed by Penelope Spheris, based upon the Saturday Night Live skit, tells the story of Wayne and Garth, played by Mike Myers as Wayne and the marvelous Dana Carvey as Garth. They host a cable TV access show. They like to party hard, or so they say, when they really are just kind of two dorky guys. But Wayne meets a hot babe, and the rest of the movie is his attempt to win her over, and then the show gets gets a corporate sponsor, and things get worse. I really, really like this movie, and I also felt like we needed some movie tonight to represent Saturday Night Live, uh, which is certainly a show that helped shape my comedy over the years. Well, well, from a television perspective, from a movie perspective, you don't want Saturday Night Live. <laughs> pretty <laughs> sketchy. And that's what's kind of amazing about this movie is that, first off, Saturday Night Live movies are horrendous for the most part. Mm-hmm. This is one of the few good ones. And what's strange to me about it is that if you looked at their stable of sketches and recurring characters back then, Wayne's World, to me, didn't seem like one that would lend itself very well to the small screen. Like yeah, They seemed right. like characters that were kind of one, two trick ponies over and over and over again. And so when I heard this movie was coming out, I was kind of like, mm-hmm. There's no way that's going to be good. And it was fantastic. I mean, they somehow breathed some life into these seemingly one-dimensional characters and made them actually hold an entire two-hour movie together. Yeah, I mean, you really grow to like both Wayne and Garth through the movie. And I think that the writers did an amazing job with that. It might be the best SNL movie, but looking at the list of SNL movies, it's really it's not, not yeah. saying much. Yeah. I don't really understand why SNL doesn't translate well to, to the screen. And, and it may really be the fact that you're trying to force something that works on a television yeah. sketch it's show format. For five minutes. Yeah. yeah. yeah it just doesn't it work. That's right. true. And yeah, for some reason with Wayne's World, it did. It, it kind of broke out of its small screen confines and well, turned I, into a really great film. I think maybe it, it was more relatable in a way. Like it wasn't, I mean, they're crazy characters, but they're not Pat or yeah, they're, they're not, not like really weird. They're kind of like normal they're not, guys. They're not, they're not obnoxiously gimmicky. Yeah. Right. But a bunch, a bunch of Heshers are going to watch that and love yeah. it. And we're talking about a time period when Beavis and Butthead was around. So like, right. it's not that different, but in a good way. Wait, that what was similar. that word you used? Heshers? Yeah. What is that? You're like, um, <laughs> isn't that the guy that played Napoleon Dynamite? John Hesher? No, not. Very was it the guy that like was German on... troops? Like Hessians? Like, <laughs> no, Hesher, uh, Hesher's like a... Is that like a candy bar? Hesher candy bar? Like a hard rock guy? Hard, like Hard Rock Cafe? Oh, he's going to show us a picture of a Hesher now. Hesher. It's going to be a German soldier. Yeah. <laughs> Alice in Wonderland Hesher. had a Hesher cat. <laughs> <laughs> A.K.A. Noun. 
<laughs> Noun, plural, Heschers, slang, a diehard enthusiast of heavy metal music. Oh. Yeah. So in, it's like the guy that goes into Guitar Center and plays uh, Stairway to Heaven. <laughs> totally. Yeah. That's yeah. a great scene in yeah. this movie, <laughs> too. Movie, yeah. Exactly. No Stairway to Heaven. Yeah. Right. And yeah. so, like, there, there were so many of those guys. Yeah, that's true. That it, it was more relatable than any other. Yeah. yeah it, I, think, I think you're getting to a lot of what it was. And I think it also is a movie that keeps stringing together these really fresh moments that are that really that aren't that aren't like central to the plot but they keep making it entertaining like yeah. the whole uh, Alice Cooper bit mm, was yeah. awesome yeah. yeah the Charlton Heston thing yeah um, the, they, like the graduate yeah they just yeah they keep bringing these great moments into it and it, for some reason I don't know if it was just how they spaced it out or what but mm-hmm. like it just kept engaging you and it, it worked really well yeah. and it has like what I think is one of the all-time comedy scenes certainly of the 90s of the whole Bohemian Rhapsody car oh, song yeah which I mean that song I had never heard heard before the movie then it was a little surprised and that was a dumb six, six, 15 year old but yeah I believe it became like a radio hit yeah, again yeah. Oh, yeah. after the movie time. yeah big time and that's just a great scene Foxy Lady fun. too yeah, Foxy Lady yeah had a great soundtrack I remember a lot of people on the the, yeah, the yeah. compact disc. Oh, I think <laughs> that was a thing. Yeah. And the audio cassette yeah. too, probably. I think you guys have hit, you know, one reason why it works too is because it does have comedy for everybody. It's not just a one note comedy. For the whole mm-hmm. family. There's nerds, I don't there's know about the whole family. Rockers. I mean, as like a middle schooler, how old were when it came out? 15. 15. Yeah. I mean, 14, it was, 15. it was like the ultimate movie for yeah. us at that time. Apparently, Mike Myers was not easy to work with on this film, <laughs> constantly arguing with director Spheres, including at one point turning over the craft service table and refusing to come out of his trailer because there was only butter and no margarine for his bagel. <laughs> wow. I've heard that a lot about Mike Myers. Yeah, and he was not happy with the yeah. final product of the film. Oh, really? Yeah. Come it's strange on. since it kind of catapulted him into <laughs> right superstar. Yeah, yeah, let him do everything else. Yeah, he did. I've heard that's that's unfortunate too. I've heard he's just a nightmare to work with. I, I've which... heard it's because he's Canadian. Ah, <laughs> <laughs> oh, there's so many there's nice a, Canadians. There's such a oh, rabid. The, there's such that was a the joke. There's such oh. a rabid people. <laughs> <Yeah>. <laughs> I think my favorite scene in this movie is actually when Wayne and Garth go to watch the airplanes take off. Mm. Yeah, and they start to yell because it, it was an idea I don't think I'd ever had before, and it was so. Romantic is maybe the wrong word, but like it's such a like romantic thing to do. Not mm-hmm. love romantic, but just right. like what a cool idea. And my favorite line is they're laying there and Garth turns to Wayne and says, Did you ever find Bugs Bunny attractive when he'd put on a dress and play a girl bunny? No. <laughs> no. no. Neither did I. I was just asking. And it's like yeah. this yeah, it's incredibly like genuine yeah. moment that's really beautiful. Well, I was reading that that was improv by Dana Carvey, that they were just, they were filming while waiting for another plane to pass. Oh. Uh, and he just made that joke. And the Mike Myers laughing is really him <laughs> oh, laughing. Okay. Then that yeah. makes sense that makes why sense. it's so yeah. genuine. Abraham Lincoln. Oh, Abraham Lincoln is amazing. <laughs> Jordan, your third funniest. All right. In 1994, I was 13 years old, eight years younger than the rest of these guys were. <laughs> People are so confused by our age. <laughs> like when we were babysitting you? Yeah. yeah, yeah. I had grown up watching my parents' and grandparents' favorite comedies. Uh, Jerry Lewis was my absolute favorite, but also Abbott Costello, Bob Hope and Bing Crosby, and TV comedies like I Love Lucy and Get Smart. You didn't have many friends, did you, Jordan? <laughs> I had a ton of friends. They were just all senior citizens. They just, I'm, not sure never I'm not sure your parents had many friends. <laughs> well, we we didn't have TV, so... Wait, so how I did only, you watch these? I only watched it at my grandparents' house. When we brought it on, on the, the projector. Reels, <laughs> the projector and 
uh, movie night at the senior center. He, he whittled he whittled a TV out of a log nearby. It's just your parents reenacting all these movies. You think your dad's God, Jerry Lewis? Terrible. Sounds amazing. <laughs> so when I sat down in the theater for what would be the comedic smash hit of the mid 1990s, I was no newcomer to goofball idiocy as comedy. The movie, of course, is Dumb and Dumber, the directorial debut of the Farrelly Brothers. Let me ask you a question real quick. Was well, this, let me answer it. Had you like seen other movies at the theater before Dumb and Dumber? Oh yeah, Last of the Mohicans. Oh yeah, that's your R-rated one. Uh, but but based upon what your comedy tastes were there and how this movie was, I mean, that had to be quite the shock. I probably hadn't seen many comedies. Okay, I think I'd seen um, uh, Terminal Velocity. That's funny in <laughs> itself. We all had yep. Charlie Sheen. <laughs> Best friends Lloyd, played by Jim Carrey, and Harry, played by Jeff Daniels, are two complete idiots down on their luck living in Providence, Rhode Island. We meet them on a day when they both get fired from their respective jobs. Lloyd's last client as a limo driver before getting fired is a beautiful redhead named Mary that he takes to the airport. When he sees Mary leave her briefcase in the terminal, he rushes in and grabs the briefcase, determined to return it to her. What the hell are we doing here, Harry? We gotta get out of this town! Yeah, and go where? Where are we gonna go? I'll tell you where. Someplace warm. A place where the beer flows like wine. Where beautiful women instinctively flock like the salmon of Capistrano. I'm talking about a little place called Aspen. I don't know, Lloyd. The French are a Wait a minute. Wait a minute, I know what you're up to, mister. Yeah, you just want to go to Aspen and find that girl who lost her briefcase, and you need me to drive you there, right? Am I right? Yeah, Am I so? right? Am yeah. I right, Lord? So? So I want to go someplace where we know somebody who can plug us into the social pipeline. And so begins a hilarious romp across the country as the friends get themselves in way over their mental capacities. At the time of its release, Jim Carrey was just about the hottest comedic ticket in Hollywood. After four years on the sketch comedy show In Living Color, Carrey made his leading man debut as Ace Ventura Pet Detective in February of 1994. Five months later, another smash hit, The Mask. And just five months after that, Dumb and Dumber. That's three giant hits in ten months with Jim Carrey front and center. Hmm. Yeah, I was reading when he started negotiations for Dumb and Dumber, he was asking for $700,000. And by the time it ended, Ace Ventura had opened. And so he got $7 million yeah. for this movie. Yeah, wow. it's, it's insane. <clears throat> While all of us were laughing hysterically at Carrie doing his spastic, weirdo, overly exaggerated rubber man bit, I believe it was Jeff Daniels that was subtly capturing the comedic genius. It was hard to see then, but revisiting this movie 20 plus years later, it's Jeff Daniels all the way. After Lloyd and Harry make it to Aspen, they buy their way into a benefit gala, 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 uh, sure, for endangered snow owls, of which, goals, gala, for endangered snow owls, of which Mary is an organizer. Lloyd convinces Harry to talk to Mary for him. Are you a bird lover? Me? Oh, no. Well, I used to have a parakeet, but now my main area of expertise is um, canines. Dogs, to the layperson. Thanks. Mm -hmm. I love dogs too. Oh. So how are you involved with them? Oh, I've you know I've trained them, you know, bathed them, clipped them, I've even bred them. Oh really? Any unusual breeding? No, mostly just doggy style. One time, we successfully mated a bulldog with a Shih Tzu. Really? That's weird. Yeah, we we called it a bull. 
The movie has plenty of flaws, but it's the first real blockbuster comedy I can remember of my generation. Bravo to Jeff Daniels for playing the long game. I can't imagine it was an easy decision. Apparently, Carrie was paid $7 million, like Hudson said, for the, for the role of Lloyd. The studio was actually so against Jeff Daniels that they offered him only $50,000 in hopes that he would turn it down. I'm so glad he accepted it. It's Harry that holds up now after 23 years. And was it the Fairley brothers that really wanted him? Yeah. But I mean, that... Carrie got paid 140 <laughs> times as much. And, and I mean, yeah, he was a bigger star. So yeah. that, like, it makes sense that well, he got and paid And I read more. even that the first week of filming, none of Harry's scenes were in it because the studio was still wanting to replace him that late it's in the crazy. game. I've never been a big Jim Carrey guy. Yeah. I, I, I always just found him kind of annoying. But this is easily my favorite of his movies because I felt like for a while he started doing this Robin Williams thing where all of his movies had to have this message and he tried mm. to become a dramatic actor. This yeah. movie is just sheer fun from start to finish. It's got one of my favorite lines ever ever in a movie and Mary has told Lloyd that there was a one in a million chance of them mm-hmm. actually getting together and he doesn't get the hint. And so when he finds out she's got a husband. Husband? Wait a minute. What was all that one in a million talk? Amazing. And it's filled Say with stuff like that. It's, I, mean, I, I hear people quote it. I mean, the movie's how old now? 20, 23 years. 20, yeah. What's that's yeah. amazing. It's a quarter yeah. of a century old, but yeah. it's still, it still resonates with people. And it's one of those movies that I think 50 years from now, people will still be watching yeah. and quoting. Yeah. There's rare that a uh, week goes by that I don't go, big gulps, huh? You do to say end, that a lot. To, yeah. end, yeah. to end an awkward that, conversation. Yeah. That's actually probably my favorite Jim Carrey moment in the it's whole, whole day. Well, so just, so like he just walks out of a convenience store, sees some guys, and I'm sure, I think I think most of it was, but my, my actual favorite line of the whole movie is Mary and Harry are on the ski lift and Mary says, God, it feels so good to get up here. I haven't been outside that much in the last couple of weeks. Oh yeah? Why not? Um, there's been some family problems, but I don't want to bore you with those. Thanks. <laughs> and it's so it's so quiet and, and subtle, but it's just brilliant. Uh, yeah. Pick you up at eight fifteen. Oh, quarter to eight. <laughs> well, that it's actually seven forty five and quarter to eight oh, okay. that are the same. Um, yeah. Eight, eight <laughs> fifteen is a quarter Jeez. after eight. So it's really he late, just fell prey <laughs> to the exact same joke. Okay. <laughs> That's awesome. <laughs> Gibby just became a character in Dumb and Dumber. Yeah. <laughs> Dumb and Gibbier. Gibby and Gibbier. Oh, poor Gib. Oh, well. Big gulps, huh? <laughs> there you go. <laughs> There's your get out of jail free card. <laughs> All right, Lance, number three. My number three film is Big Deal on Madonna Street, the 1958 Italian film by Mario Monticelli. My favorite comic device is when there is a disconnect between how good people are at something and how good they think they are at something. We talked last season about the Wes Anderson film Bottle Rocket, which told the story of a group of criminals who wanted so desperately to be good at being a criminal but were complete failures. Forty years earlier, Mario Monticelli told a similar story about a group of inept small-time thieves who stumble upon a can't-miss opportunity to rob a pawn shop. Well, can't-miss becomes incredible miss, as the once easy plan gets more and more complicated by circumstances and the personalities involved. A boxer with more attitude than ability who puts on arguably the worst boxing performance in film history. A father whose commitment to the plan keeps getting put on hold because he has to watch his one-year-old son. Mom can't help because she's in prison. Another with an obsession of keeping his beautiful sister hidden from society until he can arrange her marriage, something that of course will get disrupted by another member of the team who falls in love with her. Watching the team try to work together while constantly dealing with their own and each other's cluelessness is what makes this movie so fun. 
fun to watch. I try on this show to pick at least one movie on my list that I don't think most people have heard of, and I doubt there are many listeners who are familiar with this one. You really checked that box on this one. Yeah, <laughs> I really did. I know. Uh, I came across it thanks to the Criterion Collection. It has an 8.0 on IMDb, and what I loved about it is that it was the first foreign film that ever made me laugh. What you notice when you watch movies from other countries is that what's funny in one culture doesn't always translate well into other cultures. I've even noticed this traveling to other countries and seeing a major disconnect between what people find funny. <laughs> Are you really unfunny yeah. in other countries? <laughs> no, no. The stupidest, unfunniest things I say in other countries get amazing laughs. Like one time I was at a... Uh, I was having dinner with some people in, I think I was in Prague. Ooh, in I, Prague. Shut up. <laughs> <laughs> and I had a pair of gloves that I left on a table because I thought we were sitting at that table. And then we moved tables and I left my gloves over there. And I just went back up and go, oh, guys, I left my gloves on the table. Went back, picked the gloves up, brought them over. People were dying. <laughs> people thought it was the most amazing thing they'd ever seen. I was like, I just left gloves on the table. You could have really put it over top of like if you would have slipped on the way back. Well, it started jo- we started joking with my, with my American friends who were there and it was like I could probably become a killer stand-up comedian and all my entire act would be putting two tables up on a stage putting gloves on one of them walking the other one going whoops forgot the gloves where are my gloves I think it might explain why Jerry Lewis is so beloved in France I don't know just things things, I'm not and I'm not mocking the French or Jerry Lewis I'm just saying things resonate differently comedy wise Big Deal on Madonna Street seems to have a very American sense of comedy it's not filled with punchlines and pratfalls but the comedy is driven from watching people fail at something so spectacular it's not people trying to be funny. It's funny things happening to people who are trying to be serious, and that's the best kind of comedy. Mm. Yeah, I really wanted to make fun of you for this, Lance, because uh, it seemed like the most pretentious comedy choice possible. But the more I haven't seen it either, but the more I read about it, it actually sounds like really funny, and I want to watch it now. I did look up a couple of lines from it, though, and this one cracked me up. This guy is asking this little boy, he says, Did you leave my gloves across the street? <laughs> <laughs> He's like, Hey, do you, do you know a guy called Mario who lives around here? He goes, There are thousand Mario's around here. He's like, yeah, but this one's a thief. And he goes, there's still a thousand. (laughs) That was great. I actually did watch this movie. Big deal. Naturally. (laughs) And I loved it. It, It's a a really, really great movie. Do you laugh a lot? I don't know if I laughed a lot. I laughed some. Did you chuckled some? A-L. Did you laugh a lot? (laughs) Hmm. Really strange thing about this movie that there there are these like text cards in it, like from a silent film. Yeah. But it's 1958, so I don't... Yeah. It's it's just like filling (laughs) it. I guess they they were like, we don't really want to have to connect all these dots by shooting something we'll just say it 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 feels like it feels like a film that influenced and i can't even think of specific examples but it felt like stuff it feels like it was very influential on even american comedy yeah so they're trying to break into this safe and they 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 can see it from a window across the you know like a couple of buildings away and so the idea is that one of the guys has to film them opening the safe so that they can see what the combination is going to be and as he's trying to film it like all this stuff keeps happening like like a woman unfurls her laundry line like right in front of the window the, the video he, he accidentally edited it in such a way that like the video keeps intercutting back to his, his, his son, son yeah. and so every time his son comes up I'm like oh look like it's just all these moments that just yeah. felt more modern than they actually were and so it was interesting to see that there was comedy like that back yeah. then but it's a great caper story as well it is it where, is. where it, they could have easily made this movie not fun and it still would have been a great right. great movie. Right. And I'm surprised it's never been remade in America. Uh, it has, actually. Oh, tell me more. They remade this as Welcome to Collinwood, directed by huh. the Russo brothers, yeah. who are best known for their Marvel movies was now. Was uh, William H. Macy in Welcome to Collinwood? I don't know who is in it. I've never or seen Alec it. Baldwin? When was this movie made? 
Never heard of this. About 10, 15 yeah, about years 10, ago. About 10, 15 years ago. It was at the... Must have been a big Local hit. art theater. Yeah, no. it was a low, small budget movie. Never heard of this. It sounds a lot like uh, The Lady Killers. It does. Yeah, it does have some commonalities there. Which I saw a couple weeks ago, and that's really funny, so I think I'd like this. Okay, good point, Kyle. <laughs> <laughs> Gibby on Gibby, critiquing himself. I would listen to that podcast. I, I would, too. <laughs> My number two funniest film, Holiday Road. Talking about National Lampoon's Vacation. In 1979, John Hughes was a copywriter for an advertising agency when he wrote a story published in National Lampoon's magazine titled Vacation 58. It starts with the line, if dad hadn't shot Walt Disney in the leg, it would have been our best vacation ever. <laughs> One of the magazine's publishers brought the story to Warner Brothers, who agreed to make it and hired Hughes to write the script. Directed by Harold Ramis, only his second film after Caddyshack. Man, that's a good start. Yeah. The story follows the Griswold family as they spend their summer vacation driving across the country to get to the theme park Wally World. It was Disneyland in the short story, changed for obvious legal reasons, and stopping along the way to see the sights. Of course, things don't go as planned, and the family is put to the test with a backwoods extended family, stolen credit cards, a supermodel temptress, a run-in with the law, a wrecked car, and a dead grandma. I've always loved Chevy Chase, and this is my favorite role of his, despite the fact that he run it into the ground with many sequels. Clark Griswold is a little bit cool, a little bit of a dork. He's funny, he's charming, he's awkward, he's basically every dad. He's hey. someone... <laughs> I mean that as a compliment. None of oh, those okay. are you, apparently. <laughs> yeah. None of those adjectives he just gave. No, not a one. Um, he's someone you want to make fun of and be at the same time, but he also has this side of him that is so pure of heart. He wants what all suburban dads want to create this great memorable adventure for his family. There's a sweetness and optimism to him that I think makes the movie stand out above other cynical comedies of the time. It's so chock full of jokes. There's literally a hundred clips I could play from this. Every one of them makes me laugh out loud, but I wanted to talk about a couple. How do you choose? The ones that made me laugh the most. Mm. Chevy Chase's rant. When they are at their lowest, his family starts complaining and just want to go back home. And he says, I think you're all in the head. We're 10 hours from the fun park and you want to bail out. Well, I'll tell you something. This is no longer a vacation. It's a quest. It's a quest for fun. I'm going to have fun, and you're going to have fun. We're all going to have so much fun, we'll need plastic surgery to remove our smiles. You'll be whistling symphony doodah out of holes. <laughs> i got to be crazy. I'm on a pilgrimage to see a moose. Praise Marty Moose. Holy sh- that's a John Hughes special is just like his movies are all fairly clean. Then all of a sudden, like just bring them F word barrage. And, and Chevy Chase is so good at delivering these kind of like crazed rants. Well, the movie wouldn't have worked if he'd been like that the whole time. Right. But the fact yeah. that, like you said, he's this really optimistic, like all he wants is to have make memories with his family. And one thing after another keeps getting in his way. And the fact he just and watching him just lose it because you know what that's like. Yeah. Like you've been in those shoes so many times before. <laughs> this movie is is a bringing together of such great talent. I mean, you got Harold Ramis directing it, you got John Hughes writing it, you got Chevy Chase acting in it, John Candy's in it. I mean, you look down the list of who all was involved in this movie. It was almost like it was impossible for it not to be amazing. Yeah, yeah, he's so yeah. funny in this. Um, he's also one. jacked on the cover. 
Sorry. Well, <laughs> oh, I, I love in, that poster. Yeah, in, in a, in a, a weird Wars mirroring movie. of Lance's comments on the thing last week, the poster for this movie might be my favorite part about this That's movie. It's pretty great. Yeah. Where it looks like a, a Conan the Barbarian poster <laughs> mixed with... It's um, kind of Star Wars-esque. He's, he's, yeah, he's yeah, hold, kind of holding a Star tennis Wars racket and, and luggage. <laughs> just like babes hanging on his leg. I mean, it, it's, 80 short shorts. It, it's yeah. really incredible. Uh, another one of my favorite scenes is they're driving through inner city St. Louis. <laughs> they come across a bad part of town and his wife says, This is so dangerous. We have no business being in an area like this. Well, look at it this way, honey. This is a part of America we never get to see. <laughs> that's good. No, that's bad. I mean, uh, we can't close our eyes to the plight of the cities. Kids, you noticing all this plight? This will just uh, make us appreciate what we have. <laughs> Roll them up. <laughs> well, I better ask these fellows how to get back on the expressway. Pardon me. Uh, I wonder if you could tell me how to get back on the expressway. Hey, f- your mama. Thank you very much. I actually just read that Harold Ramey actually actually. Was <laughs> well, that the correct <laughs> pronunciation? Is it only Ramey? Yeah, yeah it's really? Ramey. One Ramey, not no, many Ramesses. No, it's Ramesses. You were dying to correct us on that one. <laughs> it's not Harold Ramey. He is wrong. Harold Ramey. <laughs> Harold no, I'm dying to for Gibby Ramis. to correct me on how Ramey. I pronounce someone's name. You might be right. Um, no, he's not right. <laughs> anyway, I, I just read that he deeply regretted that scene actually because yeah. he felt like it came across as racist. He said it's the most politically incorrect scene he's ever shot. Whoops. <laughs> Still very, very funny. <laughs> oh, we'll get to a yeah, movie yeah, that's yeah, way more politically incorrect <laughs> yeah. shortly. All right. Gibby, number two. I don't think any list of funniest movies ever made would be complete without my number two film. But before I get into that, let me ask you something, Lance. Do you like movies about gladiators? I do, Gibby. Have you ever seen a grown man naked? I have. <laughs> you have? No. Every day, I guess. <laughs> yeah. I have a mirror. Yeah. <laughs> my film is a 1980 hilarious comedy airplane exclamation point stars robert hayes as ted striker man who bought his plane ticket at the beginning of the movie to try and win back his girlfriend elaine who's about to board a cross-country flight as a stewardess the only thing is all the pilots on the planes including a guy who looks a lot like kareem abdul jabbar gets stricken by food poisoning and ted who's also a ptsd vietnam vet has to safely land the plane airplane I'm not to land the airplane. Yeah, yeah. (laughs) I'm confused. We knew what a plane was. I'm I'm not sure there's any other movie ever made where there's just so many jokes. Uh, There's this website that had an article last year where the authors ranked all 178 jokes in the movie. What was number one? Uh, The number one joke. I remember reading that article and thinking that they missed some jokes though. That they weren't. 178 doesn't seem like. I don't even know they actually. Well, that and I I felt like they had them very misplaced too. Oh, absolutely. The number one is really funny, and I think it would be great to play it back then. It's the when are we going to land this plane? But it's just then when he said, "What's the number one joke?" Oh, okay. okay. <laughs> the, 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 you can tell me. This segment is going off the rails very quickly. You can tell Half me. Half of it has been us trying to Google things. <laughs> no. So the number one joke they landed on was Captain, how soon can you land? I can't tell. You can tell me I'm a doctor. No, I mean, I'm just not sure. But can't you take a guess? Well, not for another two hours. You can't take a guess for another two hours? 
Yeah, that's not the best joke in the movie. <laughs> um, I, I can't it, guess. it is my opinion that Leslie Nielsen is the best part of this movie, and okay. I like his jokes the best. This is just a personal thing, but like I, to me, slapstick that's done well mm. is the funniest possible thing. Yeah. The problem is very few st- slapstick movies have been a while. Like, there's like maybe three or four. We'll actually get into another one later. Yeah. This is the greatest slapstick film ever made, probably. The disco scene alone should be studied in film school. <laughs> the it it opens and yeah. closes with two Girl Scouts in a hilariously violent fist fight, <laughs> and everything in between is, e- is equally incredible. It's pretty hard to argue against this movie being at least in the top five greatest comedy yeah, spots. I mean, in terms of its influence. Mm-hmm. And I mean, I, f- I would imagine every comedian you see today fell in love with this movie growing up, and uh, it's heavily influenced them. And AFI's 100 Years, 100 Laughs, it was number 10 on it. That's, that's pretty high up on that list. It's very high up on that list. But the story, top 10. the yeah. story of how they made this Roughly. film is interesting <laughs> because basically what they did was they just took a, a serious airplane movie, <laughs> right. Zero which, Hour. Yeah, was Zero. that what it was? Yeah. From nineteen fifty-seven or so. Yeah, yeah. Zucker they, had seen it late on TV one night. Yeah, they lifted the exact plot right. and just put jokes in and it. and characters. And that's all they did. Character yeah. names. I mean, it's, yeah. the, it's the exact Lines. plot. You can, I saw it. But there was a kind of like airplane disaster movie genre there that was kind of popular yeah, yeah, in the seventies. So that's what that's why it lent itself to being lampooned like mm-hmm. that, but not nationally. But but not nationally. A couple of great tidbits about this movie. They made a sequel to this movie, which the filmmakers of this film were not involved in at all. And from what I understand, the DVD commentary for Airplane, they say they've never even seen Airplane wow, 2. Wow, really? Yeah. I believe it. I saw Airplane 2 a couple of years ago, or parts of it, and it is basically just the first movie with the it exact is. same yeah. jokes. Except it's in the spaceship. So a couple of my favorite jokes from it is the airline controller is saying, bad news, the fog's getting thicker. And the Johnny character (laughs) says, and Leon's getting larger. (laughs) Johnny character is that he is one of the great unsung comedy characters. Yeah, you can't talk about this movie without talking about the Johnny character. He he has no like real reference point. He just pops in and shows random moments, does something hilarious, and then jumps back out. I want the best available man in this. A man who knows that plane inside and out. It won't crack under pressure. How about Mr. Rogers? Mayday! Mayday! Mayday? What the hell is that for? Mayday? Why, that's the Russian New Year. You know, we'll have a big parade and we'll serve hot or dirty. I don't know what's going on. Chief, this weather bulletin just came off the wire. Johnny, what can you make out of this? This? Why, I could make a cap or a brooch or a pterodactyl. Um, he might be the only character that you feel like he's trying for a laugh. Everybody else plays their characters yeah, so seriously. Yeah. yeah. Well, like he the just Leon comes getting out of larger, nowhere. He like stares at the camera. Yeah. Another one is when Rex Kramer's talking. Stand by, Stryker. My one hope is to build this man up and give him all the confidence I can. Stryker, you ever flown a motor engine plane before? No, never. It. I'm wasting the time. There's no way you can land this plane. Have all yourself. You gotta joke him down. You gotta. Rod him in Lake Michigan. At least he'll avoid killing innocent people. There's that other striker scene at the very end where they've left the cockpit and he's still over there talking. Christmas, Ted. What does that mean to you? It was a living hell. Do you know what it's like to fall in the mud and get kicked in the head with an iron boot? Of course you don't. No one does. Never happened. Sorry, Ted. That's a dumb question. Skip that. But he keeps uh, going on and yeah. on. The other fun tidbit is the kind of red zone, white zone argument. Which oh, was, but yeah. apparently it was recorded by a real life husband and wife who recorded the actual LAX announcements. Really? Yeah. Oh, wow. That's great. The red zone is for immediate loading and unloading of passengers only. There's no stopping in the white zone. No, the white zone is for loading and unloading, and there is no stopping in the red zone. 
red zone has always been for loading and unloading. There's never stopping in a white zone. Don't tell me which zone is for stopping and which zone is for loading. Listen, Betty, don't start up with your white zone again. This is kind of weird, but the Shirley joke, which is Leslie Nielsen's joke whenever anyone says, Shirley, you can... Blah, blah, blah. Yeah, maybe the most repeated and don't, joke. And don't call me Shirley. Yeah. yeah, yeah, it's incredibly famous but for whatever reason whenever my brain has free space and it's been this way for 15 or 20 years my brain thinks of that joke <laughs> and i'll just like i'm driving and it's probably probably happens once a week where i'm that that joke just enters my mind and i just think about oh i hope i get a chance sometime soon to, to use that, that joke, joke. <laughs> and i almost never get to use that joke it's now that you're a dad is what it is i mean yeah maybe so it's a super dad surely joke. it is <laughs> not doing it not gonna do it why'd you call him Shirley. <laughs> best close. delivery. Yeah. <laughs> close. My name isn't Shirley. <laughs> All righty. Uh, Jordan, number two. Like I mentioned earlier, I grew up with a love for the classic mid-century Hollywood comedies. For Christmas in 1991, I received one of my all-time favorites on VHS. Sad Christmas. <laughs> it wasn't the only thing I got that year, but it was exciting and I still have it. It was my number two pick, Road to Morocco. Yep, nobody's ever heard of it. <laughs> it is the third installment in as many years of the quote-unquote Road series starring comedian Bob Hope, crooner Bing Crosby, and actress and singer Dorothy Lamour. Wait, is it... It's like a trilogy? There were seven, seven of, them. of them. Oh, so, it, so it's an ongoing story. Right. Yeah. Do you have to have uh, seen the first two to no. get the third one? Right no. after this was uh, Road to Perdition. <laughs> it's not true, audience. Then followed by it's Highway to Hell. <laughs> also. They didn't have Road in it. I wish that was oh, true. Oh, it's Highway to Heaven. Sorry, <laughs> Michael Landon. <laughs> Okay. <laughs> this team of Bob Hope, Bing Crosby, and Dorothy L'Amour would ultimately make seven movies to answer your question, Lance, in the series, but the third movie is the cream of the crop. Bing plays Jeff Peters, and Bob is Orville Turkey Jackson, uh, and he also appears as the ghost of his, of his dead Aunt Lucy, a pair of hapless cousins who constantly find themselves in sticky situations. I should mention, actually, that this is from 1942, middle of World War II, bit of a shaky time. I remember it well. Way to bring it down. This time, after <laughs> Turkey accidentally blows up a freighter ship on which they were stowing away, the cousins are shipwrecked on the North African shore and make their way to Morocco on the back of a camel. Bing, As, as one does. Well, as two do in this, in this one. <laughs> uh, Bing asks... Where do you suppose we are? This must be the place where they empty all the old hourglasses. They're walking through the desert. It's funny. That's funny. Clever. Funny. Is that funny? I certainly think so. And then they sing us this hilariously self-aware song. Where, where we're going, why we're going, how can we be sure? I'll lay you eight to five that we meet Dorothy Lamoye. <laughs> Off on the road to Morocco. Once in Morocco, Bing sells Bob into slavery. Bob falls in love with Princess Shalmar, played by the aforementioned Dorothy Lamour. And then everything gets turned upside down and sideways, and we get more brilliant one-liners and gags than you knew they could cram into one movie. It's just as a camel says, later in a particularly chaotic scene. This is the screwiest picture I was ever in. This is a very broad oh, comment, man. isn't it? Yeah, it's out there. They smoked a lot of weed making this one. 
Or was it opium? <laughs> right. <Yeah. laughs> Road to Morocco even features Anthony Quinn as Sheikh Molay Kasim. Tony Quinn's in this? Who would later go on to be in another little Arabian-ish film, Lawrence of Arabia. I've heard of Larry of Arabia. Yeah, yeah. Larry. Larry. Uh, Road to Morocco was the fourth largest grossing movie in 1942 in the U.S. Sits at number 78 on AFI's list, 100 Years, 100 Laughs. And the song you heard a minute ago uh, is at 95 on AFI's 100 Years, 100 Songs. It's also 957 on <clears throat> the iTunes singles chart. Really? <laughs> it's in the top 1,000? <laughs> what? You're kidding. Yeah, I am. Oh. <laughs> that would have been amazing. Naturally, it's not without a bit of that 1940s casual misogyny and racism. There's no way around that. Zoinks. <laughs> One of the videos I watched about this was John Landis talking about the movie. Yeah. He calls it cheerfully misogynist, <laughs> cheerfully racist. <laughs> cheerfully yeah. racist. Landis is a funny I wonder guy. why he's not working anymore these days. <laughs> at the end, Bob Hope delivers one of his favorite recurring gags, a desperate attempt at winning an Oscar. Shipwrecked again, this time with Manhattan in sight, Bob lays into his act. <laughs> I can't go on. No food, no water. It's all my fault. We're done for. It's got me. <laughs> I can't stand it. No food, no nothing. No food, no water. <laughs> no food. <laughs> What's the matter with you anyway? There's New York. We'll be picked up in a few minutes. If you had to open your big mouth and ruin the only good scene I got in the picture. I might have won an Academy Award. But Bob Hope never won an Oscar. And how could he with a performance like that? But he did host the Academy Awards yeah, he was 19 hosting. times, more than any other wow. host. Was he hosting like during the time of these, like in 1942? I don't know what years he hosted. Mm-hmm. I know he hosted for a long time. Yeah, I'm tell Jordan, I've never, I've never seen this. I had never even heard of this until I built on your list. But hearing your description, I kind of want to see it now. Something about friend selling another friend into slavery just gets <laughs> me. I don't know what it is. That's, that's really funny for some Lance, reason. if you had to pick one of us to sell into slavery, who would it be? Uh, just one can't I don't know who would get the most me. money It'd yeah, be me. well it depends on what like what kind of slavery is is it like hard work slavery is it like <laughs> useless movie trivia slavery sex slavery <laughs> depends yeah I mean hmm. I don't know which one of you would fetch top dollar <laughs> it's hard to say <laughs> on the market we all, we all have our value depends on the market I watched some clips from this not the whole movie because yeah. that's the kind of research I do for this show <laughs> I got the feeling that Hope and Crosby never let you forget that they are Hope and Crosby in this they're constantly kind of winking at the camera right and like it felt more like a variety show than a movie well the movie definitely does doesn't feel like a variety show, not to me at least. But it's an interesting point because in the first Road Two movie, which I believe is Zanzibar, you're looking at the wrong people. Singapore. <laughs> yeah. I don't know. Well, I, I thought yes. Gibby was looking that uh, stuff up. I believe Zanzibar. He's looking up a lot anyway. right now. That I'm not sure. What <laughs> anyway, the- in, in the first one, it, it wasn't supposed to be played like that. And Dorothy Lamour at some at one point during shooting a scene looked at the camera and said, "Hey, I haven't had a line in a while." <laughs> and everybody cracked up laughing. And so they were like, "Well, let's let's just kind of make this the style of the, of the film." So. A lot of it is ad-libbed. That's fine. And and I believe Bing and Bob had done a radio show together before they started doing these movies. And so they had a real rapport with each mm-hmm. other anyway. And uh, and so, yeah, it's it's very self-aware and self-referential. Yeah. And they're always winking at the camera. And so we should be making comedies. Because we've, we've got a good rapport. <laughs> rapport? <laughs> Michael Rapport. I think we'd all make terrible rappers. <laughs> all right, Lance, number two. My number two film, Dr. Strangelove, or How I Learned to Stop Worrying and Love the Bomb. 1964 film by the legendary director Stanley Kubrick tells the story of an insane general who starts a nuclear conflict and the war room full of politicians and generals frantically trying to stop him. This might be my favorite Kubrick movie. He obviously had a... Really? Really? Yeah. Wow. 
Wow. Yeah. You guys seem really disappointed by this. I'm not, I'm not disappointed. I, I love this movie, but it's far from my favorite really? Kubrick film. Well, Kubrick had a, had a fascinating career because each film he made felt like it was his attempt to make his mark on a particular genre and just try his hand mm-hmm. at it. And this was his attempt at comedy, and it is an amazing one. Yeah. Um, it's important to remember what was going on in the world at the time of this movie, where nuclear holocaust was an actual fear people lived with daily. And what Kubrick did was take that fear and turn it into something hilarious. The perception I have is that Kubrick viewed world leaders at the time as acting like a bunch of children. So he decided to make a film that depicts them as exactly that, children. And so what Dr. Strangelove does is gives us the story of the leaders of the world completely exposed as the immature idiots Kubrick believed them to be. And it's watching a group of men trying to deal with this situation that is way too big for them that makes this film such a delight to watch. In his Great Movies review, Roger Ebert made this observation about Dr. Strangelove that I think holds true for all comedies and many of the ones we've talked about tonight. Dr. Strangelove's humor is generated by a basic comic principle. People trying to be funny are never as funny as people trying to be serious and failing. The laughs have to seem forced on unwilling characters by the logic of events. A man wearing a funny hat is not funny, but a man who doesn't know he's wearing a funny hat, ah, now you've got something. And there are some very funny hats being worn in this movie. This is a film entirely made up of great characters, lines, and performances. Sterling Hayden is General Jack Ripper, the character who sets the plot in motion based on his belief that the Russians are brainwashing us via the water supply. Slim Pickens is Major King Kong, the pilot of the plane that will deliver the nuclear warhead who gets to take one of the funniest rides in film history. George C. Scott as General Buck Turgidson, the epitome of the (laughs) military alpha male and my personal favorite character in the movie who can barely contain his unwarranted excitement at the possibility of going to war with the Russians. General Turgidson, is there really a chance for that plane to get through? Well, uh, sir, uh, if the pilot's good, see, I mean, I mean, if he's really sharp he can barrel that baby in so low I <laughs> you ought to see it sometime it's a sight a big plane like a 52 room this jet exhaust frying chickens in the barnyard <laughs> yeah but has he got a chance has he got a chance <laughs> and of course peter sellers who famously played three roles in the film the british envoy lionel mandrake who must awkwardly deal with ripper as he attempts to thrust nuclear annihilation on the world president merkin muffley the overly polite u.s president who tries to diplo- diplomatically tiptoe around a terrible situation <laughs> and has the best line in the movie gentlemen you can't fight in here this is the war room and of course the title character dr strangelove a reformed nazi scientist who hasn't exactly been able to purge all the nazi out of his system <laughs> I find this to be Kubrick's most accessible film for mainstream audiences and one that a lot of people still haven't seen, even though they'll probably recognize certain lines or moments. And that's really why it's so funny. It's a string of amazing moments and characters against the backdrop of one of the greatest political satires ever made. Yeah, I really enjoy this movie, but I I see it on Funniest Movies of All Time list, and it's number three on AFI's 100 Years, 100 Laughs. But, like, I think it's clever, but it's not, like, laugh out loud to me. Like, I don't put it on and guffaw, you know what I mean? Yeah, I can can understand that. and I'm, it's like I watch it. And I'm like, oh, that that's really smart. That's really funny. But I'm not like laughing. At yeah, it. fair enough. In addition to being, I think, very funny, it's also beautifully shot. It, it's, 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 it's it's almost like it's shot too beautifully for its subject matter and how absurd right. it is. It's it's a funny like juxtaposition of. But that's Kubrick. Yeah, exactly. I mean, you know, horror movies aren't generally shot as beautiful as as The Shining was, and and right. so I love that about Kubrick. Like like you're saying, how he he wanted to make his mark, and and I mean, this movie's brilliant. Yep. And has one of the greatest final shots of oh, yeah. all time. Well, I mean, we can go ahead and talk about that. At the end, basically, the entire world gets destroyed. <laughs> yeah. And it's almost like Kubrick saying, "Probably be better if we just started over. <laughs> We're not very good at this." 
this. Maybe we should just start the whole thing over and hit the reset button. And th- that's the type of, of, of absurdity. I understand why this isn't. I mean, it's not the film criticy thing to say to say this is the best Kubrick movie of all time. It's just the, it's the one I enjoy the most. He would make a movie once every few years, and it would be one of the greatest films ever made. That, that was just how he worked. He yeah. he took his time, but the product was always incredible. Much like we are. Well, I, me- I remember. Sure. I, I saw <laughs> I saw an interview with Martin Scorsese about him, and he said every Kubrick movie when it came out, you just knew it was going to be an event. Yeah. How does how does Scorsese have time to make movies when most of his time is spent giving interviews on other <laughs> filmmakers? Oh, that's a great question. I think everything we've ever covered, I've heard a Scorsese quote on. Yeah. This was right in the middle of his filmography for Kubrick. Smack dab in the middle. Smack dab, huh? Yep. Have you seen this, Gib? I haven't. I own it. <laughs> Two, unsu- two unsurprising I'm, facts. I may actually have two copies of it. Now, I think. This movie, too, is, I mean, it's not just a pure comedy. Like, there's so much going on here, and there's so much he's trying to say. And I, honestly, I, I've seen it so many times, and I still don't feel like I'm getting everything he's trying to do in it. Yeah. Like, it just feels so intellectually higher than me. And I, and I don't know if it's because it's just Kubrick, so I assume there's some brilliant thing <laughs> going on that I'm not getting. Maybe I'm overthinking it. I don't know. But. I'm not sure that you could run out of viewings in the sense that you wouldn't find something new or... Yeah, exactly. Gain it's something it's from a film it. you can keep revisiting over and over again, and just see new things and learn new things. And yeah, and I've I've heard that if you if you don't have time to watch it, you can just buy as many copies as as you can, <laughs> and and you'll really just gain keep, something keep from yourself. that. Are you making fun of me? <laughs> I am. Uh, I wasn't paying attention. <laughs> <laughs> you weren't paying attention. Are you busy with something right now? <laughs> I'm prepping for my next section. <laughs> <laughs> All right. Well, let's go to that. All right, my number one <coughs> film. I am so excited to talk about this movie. I am excited. Excited for you to talk about this movie. Thank you. You get to be part of it. You're here. The three writer directors, David Zucker, Jim Abrams, and Jerry Zucker, aka Zaz, have many (laughs) credits and collaborations to their name. Are they really known as Zaz? Yeah. But the three have only two feature length movies that they all wrote and directed together. The first was the movie we talked about earlier, the giant hit Airplane. Um, And they very well could have repeated the same beats with another film. In fact, they were asked to do a sequel and they passed on it. Instead, they really swung for the fences and they made Top Secret. And while Airplane came first, Top Secret has always been the funnier and more creative movie, in my opinion. While Airplane was a spoof of the airplane disaster genre, Top Secret is a spoof of both World War II spy movies and Elvis movies. It follows rock star Nick Rivers as he's asked to perform in East Germany, unaware of the government's intentions of overthrowing the entire German government, Along the way, he teams with Hilary Flamin, uh, Flamond, Flamond, and a group in a group of French freedom fighters to free her scientist father. And well, I'll let Nick explain it. I'm not the first guy who fell in love with a girl he met in a restaurant who then turned out to be the daughter of a kidnapped scientist, only to lose her to a childhood lover who she'd last seen on a deserted island and who turned out 15 years later to be the leader of the French underground. I know it. It all sounds like some bad movie. I've seen this dozens of times, and I'm still not sure I know what's going on in the plot, but it has some of the most inventive and well-crafted comedy bits ever put on screen, whether it's a scene shot completely backwards. That or a, scene is amazing. Or, yeah. a, or a bar fight scene shot completely underwater, or the multiple musical numbers throughout. You just Hang on, you just made a great point that I've never thought about with this movie, where like I don't think I know what's going on in it. Yeah. And like you, I've seen it dozens of times, <laughs> and I do not care. Yeah. Yeah. It is so unbelievably 
absolutely hilarious. I absolutely love this well, movie. Well, I even and, read an interview with the Zucker brothers where they were talking about like it doesn't really have a plot. And I started to argue with them. And then the yeah. more I thought about it, I was like, oh, wait, I have no idea yeah. what happens in it. Like you yeah. said, I've, I've seen this yeah. probably 20 times and I could not sit here and tell you what the movie's about. And, yeah. I, and I don't say that as to dissuade people. You're not going to care what the movie's <laughs> right. about. Yeah. It perplexes me how this movie isn't more talked about and loved. And, and I, I, I think you could argue it's the most underrated comedy ever made. Mm. I mean, it's not that people haven't heard about it, but I think, like like you said, Hudson, I think it's every bit as good as Airplane, if not better. Yeah. And yet, everybody's heard of Airplane, nobody's heard of Top Secret. One of my favorite things that can be done in a comedy is to cast a, a non-traditionally comedic actor yeah. in a comedic yep. role. And Val Kilmer in this is just, I guess. But before this, he was a theater actor. He had just graduated from Juilliard, so he was a very serious actor right. when they cast him in this. And I wanted to make a couple points that I feel like a lot of filmmakers have tried to recreate the kind of magic that Zaz has has created and, and they all fail. But I think there's two things that everyone seems to miss when they try to recreate this is one is they cast serious actors that did it in airplane too. And I'm not sure any of the cast in this movie is traditionally comedic actors. The two leads they hired after seeing them in stage plays and it keeps the performances from winking at the camera and therefore losing what makes a spoof work, which is it has to take the genre seriously. Well, it goes back to what I was talking about earlier that I think it was the Ebert thing where he said, it's funniest when people are trying to be serious right. and, exactly. it, and it falls apart. Right. Yep. The second thing that they do is, and this is a quote from Abrams. He says, if you're doing a spoof from a scene from a movie, it has to work regardless or not whether you get the reference. And the film definitely spoofs other films from The Great Escape to Blue Lagoon, but the films that they spoof are all just setups for actual jokes. Like, they're still telling jokes. Mm-hmm. It's not just being like, hey, remember this movie? Yeah. Which is a lot of what, like, the modern spoof Yeah, the right. modern right. spoof just recreates scenes from Harry Potter and puts them in an yeah. American college instead of... yeah. Right. It's sad. This is a fan- phenomenal movie. I've introduced probably more people to this movie than I have maybe any other movie in my life. Even Black Stallion? <laughs> <laughs> think of all the people well, you've think introduced of all the to Black Stallion now podcast, yeah. who haven't watched it. Hey, everybody keeps raving about Sing Street after you recommend yeah, it. That's right, because it's good. It. That went viral. Yeah. yeah. It's not, guys. This is, <laughs> at the beginning of this podcast, I said that they were my three favorite movies we talk about. This is the third. You what know, were the other two? You said what? I, I said my three favorite comedies are we talk about today, uh, but I don't oh, get to talk gotcha, about all three gotcha. of them. So this is the top secret one. It's just really funny. What I ran across when I saw it again this time is the problem I've always kind of had in the movie, if there's one problem, it's the ending, is that it just kind of ends, uh, and that made me go to the Back to the fart. <laughs> <laughs> Made me go back to the fart. <laughs> Wait, what? <laughs> Made me go back to what we talked about that doesn't have a plot. Um. <laughs> yeah, the whole story he tells about how he like yeah. became an orphan. is the, It's the <laughs> stupidest thing ever. Yeah, there's so many bits in the movie that are visual, but I wanted to mention a couple of favorite lines real quick. One is when Dr. Flamand says, You see, a year ago, I was close to perfecting the first magnetic desalinization process, so revolutionary. It was capable of removing the salt from over 500 million gallons of seawater a day. Do you realize what that could mean to the starving nations of the Earth? Wow. They'd have enough salt to last forever. Forever. (laughs) (laughs) Another one is when an East German soldier answers the phone. Yeah. It is a hospital, my general. What is the condition of Sergeant Kruger? Yes, I see. Well, let me know if there's any change in his condition. He's dead. And finally, Nick says, I'm pleased to meet you. My name's Nick. 
what does that mean? Uh, nothing. My dad thought of it while I was shaving. Give me number one. I can sense you trembling with excitement yes. about to talk about this movie. <laughs> so one fateful Saturday afternoon in 2004, my then girlfriend, now wife, and I and two other friends went to the movie house. We saw a movie that changed my perception of comedy and made me laugh out loud like no movie I had ever seen. Low movie? No movie I had ever seen. And that movie was The Passion of the Christ by Mel Gibson. <laughs> 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 no. Oh, wrong movie. Oh, that is Anchorman, <laughs> The Legend of Ron Burgundy. Same year, though? Like, can I ask you a question? Are you like telling Crystal about this the night before? So what I'm going to do, babe, is I'm going I'm I'm to I'm make you think I'm going down one path, but I'm really going to, I'm, I'm really throwing passion. No, she's like sleeping and I start laughing like because the joke is so funny. impression of giving me like, hey, babe, yeah. what's up? Wait, is George W. Bush. <laughs> she doesn't hear it because I literally write, I've made some decisions. <laughs> <laughs> the film is Anchorman, Legend of Ron Burgundy. This is one of the movies that I really wanted to talk about when we started this podcast. This would be in my personal top 12 movies of all time. Oh, 12. Yeah. Does that mean it's number so 11 number 12. or 12? <laughs> it could be like, it's probably in top eight. I think I've watched it just as much you, as any Why did you movie. do 12? Why did you do 12 slots if it's in the because top I, eight? <laughs> why do you just say top 10? Like, oh, I, I think we're doing a top 12 of each at some point in later seasons. So I'm what just, does that have to do I'm with just starting it, man. If he said eight, he couldn't fit enough yeah. Pixar movies in there after Anchorman. <laughs> it's in my top 51. What number is it? Number three. Okay. <laughs> <laughs> I've seen this movie so much and it's just something that I put in whenever I'm feeling down or, or sad or I just need a laugh. Or after these podcasts where we rip on you mercilessly. Yeah. <laughs> I, know, I know I can lean on Ron and Champ and Brian and Brick to, to bring me a laugh or two. Do I need to explain the plot? Yeah. Probably. So this is the debut film by Adam McKay uh, from 2004. Really? This was his first? Mm-hmm. Really? Wow, I didn't know that either. Yeah, he was an SNL writer before this. And Will Ferrell was still on the cast, I believe, at the time. But it's not an SNL movie. No. This was Will Ferrell's second starring role. He stars as Ron Burgundy, who's an egotistical, sexist, dumb, but hilarious lead anchorman of a local news station in 70s San Diego. Ron's the big man in the city. He's followed by his loyal team of co-workers, including reporter Brian Fantana, sportsman Champ Kind, and a uh, very dim weatherman Brick Tamlin. Their worlds rocked when the station hires Veronica Cornerstone as a reporter who soon skyrockets to co-lead anchor alongside Ron. And this is just, I think, the funniest movie I've ever seen. I, I didn't really like it that much initially, and I went back and watched it again a couple years later, and I, I didn't, I did, I still don't love it, but I, I think it is a funny movie, and I can understand why people gravitate towards it so much. I, I didn't like it at first either, and I haven't really revisited it. I had it on DVD for a while, but without a case. And um, would you keep it in? I don't take this personally, but I I actually threw it away because it bothered me so much that I didn't had this movie that I don't really <laughs> like without a case, and so it didn't. It's just, it's just there. There's so many funny scenes, that, like we talked about being so quotable, and I doubt that I go two or three days without saying I'm not even angry. I'm amazed, or you're like a wise miniature Buddha covered with hair, or and Lance. I say this to you quite often, but I miss your scent. Your musk. <laughs> miss your musk. <laughs> Maybe when this thing's all over, you and I should get an apartment together. The scene, the scene where they all sing Afternoon Delight together. Is oh, it's great. awesome. There, there are there are a lot of, and I remember even when the, when I first saw this and I didn't love it, I did recognize there were a lot of great moments in it. I just felt like the whole thing didn't work cohesively, and I, I did change my opinion on that later. I, I do think it's a good movie, and it, it seems like one the more I watch, maybe the more I'll love. But. Yeah, the more you watch it, I mean, you catch something new every time you watch it. I went back and watched the battle scene, mm-hmm. oh, and, and it great. is it is really really yeah. great, yeah. and so many good cameos yeah. in that scene yeah. too. That is such a funny idea, and and bringing in the the public news team yeah. and. and the Hispanic yeah. news team, like brilliant. it's all 
really clever and, <laughs> yeah. and really, really fun to watch. We, we should play this clip where he's like, <sighs> Boy, that escalated quickly. I mean, that really got out of hand fast. It jumped up a notch. It did, didn't it? Yeah, I stabbed a man in the heart. I saw that. Brick killed a guy. Did you throw a trident? Yeah, there were horses and a man on fire, and I killed a guy with a trident. Brick, I've been meaning to talk to you about that. You should find yourself a safe house or a relative close by. Lay low for a while because you're probably wanted for murder. To me, Brick is is actually the, yeah, the, the, the most Brick's amazing the character in this. Brick, Brick is a strange character too, though, because it's a movie filled with absurd people, mm-hmm. and he's. It, it was almost like you didn't need him. Somebody <laughs> even more absurd, but, they, but then they're like, "Well, let's just throw him yeah, in there anyway." It, it, like does it, really yeah, it does work. It's really funny. It does work. I'm not as big of a Will Ferrell guy as most people, I guess, of our kind of generation who grew up with him on SNL would love him and stuff. But I thought this movie was funny, and I really do like the supporting cast was really great in this, yeah, um, I mean, especially Paul Rudd and Steve Carell. Christina Applegate is fantastic in it, too. She's she really holds funny, her own yeah. with him. I think it would grow on me if I it's, watched it again. And- it's a grower. It's not a shower. <clears throat> oh. <laughs> <laughs> nice. Huh. Well, I'll have to fit it in sometime. <laughs> All right, Jordan, number one. Jordan, number one. Jordan, number one. Yes. Number one. In 1984, This Is Spinal Tap popularized the mockumentary movie genre. I don't think any of us would argue against This Is Spinal Tap being one of the funniest mo- films of all time. The guitarist of the seminal fictional band... <laughs> seminal... What? Seminole? Seminole Seminole. Seminole? Yeah. The guitarist of the semi-fictional band Spinal Tap, Nigel Tufnell, was played by Christopher Guest. After the success of Spinal Tap, Guest went on to direct a number of successful mockumentaries, the first of which is his comedy masterpiece from 1996. And my number one pick, Waiting for Guffman. Guest stars... That's really confusing. Christopher Guest stars... No, that's confusing too. Christopher stars as, a, as the central character, Corky St. Clair, whose first appearance was actually in an SNL st- uh, skit. Hmm. Huh. Huh. Yeah. He's a two-paid and talentless off, 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 off Wait, Broadway. Not paid too much, but wearing not paid a twice. toupee. Yeah. <laughs> yeah, exactly. Okay. Uh, Wigged. Wigged. <laughs> 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 a w- wigged and talentless off, 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 off Broadway theater director who is now living in the small town of Blaine, Missouri. As part of the big celebration of the 150th anniversary of the city of Blaine, Corky and his troupe are putting on a musical all about Blaine called Red, White, and Blaine. When they find out a representative of an actual Broadway company, a Mr. Mort Guffman, has agreed to come see their production, they believe that this is their ticket to the big time. The comedic power of Waiting for Guffman is too fold, in my opinion. One, the story of struggle and perseverance of this amateur theater troupe is phenomenal. As inspiring and hilarious as it is heartbreaking and endearing, the story gives a structure onto which the comedy can be built. And two, is the cast. Guest formed a team of superb sketch comedians to play the good-hearted folks of Blaine, earnest to the extreme. My favorites, if I had to choose, are the aggressively positive and self-confident Sheila and Ron Albertson, played by Catherine O'Hara and Fred Willard. We are introduced to them in their local business. To me, Blaine is a kind of town where I can have my own business, meet Mary, a wonderful woman like Sheila, and, and be something, be mm-hmm. somebody. Mm-hmm. Some people find it ironical that even though we run a travel agency, we've never been outside of Blaine. With one exception. <sighs> well, you, uh, we've you, never you been out. Blaine. Well, I went to Jefferson City once. It was a... Why? Uh, it was a medical reason. Just minor surgery. 
Later in the film, the Albertsons go out to dinner with the town dentist and his wife, having become friends as part of the cast of the musical. Catherine O'Hara's character has a bit too much to drink, and we find out more about that surgery. Here, I'll talk. What's it like to be with a circumcised man? I'd ask you more about that, but Ron said the whole Jew thing is because when Ron had his surgery, all right, all right, all when right. Ron had his surgery. I said, "Hey, circumcise it while you're at it." You know, just because I've never been with anyone else. Right, Ron's well, the only is, man I've been with. Well, what what surgery uh, did he have? Nothing. I had a little minor uh, corrective surgery. Oh, Can really? we have some coffee at this table, please? It's not minor anymore. <clears throat> well, maybe you know we should change no, the subject. No, I had what uh, you know most guys would uh, dream of. You know, I and I had to have. Uh, penis reduction surgery. I'm sorry? Penis reduction. Which said, there aren't many. You're going to say, I never heard of that because there haven't been many reduction. cases. Oh. Yeah. Oh, no. Do something. In the third act, we finally get to see the troupe perform the musical. The songs were actually written by the three members of Spinal Tap. Michael McKeon, Harry Shearer, and Christopher Guest. The funniest to me is Stool Boom, <laughs> about when Blaine was the stool capital of the world, <laughs> manufacturing <laughs> footstools at the turn of the 19th century. Every character is played with so much heart and a sort of surrealistic realism, I don't know how else to put it, that I can't help but fall in love with each and every one of them. And so in the crisis moments of the film, when the real drama happens, the movie becomes touching and emotional and deeply memorable, but without ever losing its comedic momentum, a feat few comedies are able to accomplish. That's a a really good point there, Jordan, that this film does have like a tinge of sadness to it. Yeah. And it, it does get kind of emotional at the end because you're invested into these characters, even as ridiculous as they are. Yeah. That you want them to succeed and just be successful in what they really want. You can tell how much they want this. So. Yeah. Yeah, um, this, is a, this is a great pick. I'm, and I'm glad you picked this movie because I think it represents... Uh, I, like, you, you could have picked a few any one of the Christopher Guest movies and they would have yeah. they, they, they would all be picked but this is a really good one the quirky character his sexuality is kind of a running joke throughout yeah. like is he or isn't he gay do you think they could have gotten away with that now well and that's what he does so great in, in his movies with all of his characters and it's something you kind of touched on earlier is that there is a love for they're not they're not spoofing right. these people right. he's not making fun of them right, right. A, there is kind them. of a, a passion about them and a respect for, for yeah, the, the different point. yeah um, I mean while his sexuality is a joke because he, he's always referring to his, his wife Bonnie and everybody else in town <laughs> is like yeah we've never seen his wife I guess <laughs> maybe that's part of the problem and um and he talks about how he, he does most of the, the shopping for his wife, and that's why he's out buying women's clothes. And, right. And it, it, those things are funny, but it, it's not... The joke isn't that he's gay as much as the joke is just him as a character and, and who he is and, and what he does. And so it, I think with that in mind, I think it could 
still work now. And right. I, don't, I don't think that there would be an uproar um, about it. One of the most amazing things about these movies is that the majority of them are improv. Oh, yeah. So Gaston Levy in this movie kind of created a blueprint to guide him. But Levy said, we know what information has to come out in the movie on a scene by scene basis. And the actors know what information has to come out. But how it comes out is entirely up to them. Every scene has a point. It's not just people rambling. There's exposition in every scene that has to be accomplished before we can move on. And so that can't change. Otherwise, you have this free for all, which is just a really amazing way to make a movie to put that much power into the actor's hands and for them to pull it off in such an amazing way. You didn't give the IMDb number like Lance does on his to impress everybody. I don't know what it is. IMDb is good at (laughs) 8.3. I don't know if you guys know anything about IMDb. That's really good. Anything above a 7 is really good. (laughs) What is it? 7.6. That's pretty good. All right, we'll do the... End all of what's the best? It's like a, Christopher. It's like a C. I'm not going to tell you guys if it's good now. You made fun of it. <laughs> oh, so the best ha- in show is seven point five. So I guess objectively, Jordan wins. A riveting yeah. podcasting, right? All right, yeah. Lance, number one, Blazing Saddles, the nineteen seventy four Mel Brooks film, generally considered one of the greatest comedies ever made. Blazing Saddles tells the story of a town in which everyone inexplicably has the name Johnson as they fight off an evil railroad baron who wants their land. He convinces the governor, played by Brooks himself, to send them a new sheriff after theirs is killed, the first black sheriff in the West named Bart. With the help of the fastest gun in the West, so fast you literally can't see his hands move, Jim, played by Gene Wilder, he must do his best to win over the very, very, very racist town townspeople <laughs> and help them save their town. <laughs> so we can't talk about Blazing Saddles without talking about that. Yeah. So let's just dive into it and deal with this. When you think of Blazing Saddles, the absolute first thing that comes to mind is the fact that this movie would never in a million <laughs> years get made today. No. And that's a real shame because what Blazing Saddles does is shows how comedy can be such an amazing tool in matters of social progress and helping us see the absurdity in ourselves. Well, we talked about this window last, was it last, uh, the sports episode, Bad News Bears. Bears. It fell Mm. into this window in the 70s and you guys kind of talked about it being like leading up to Vietnam. It's like, Mm. oh, just do whatever. You could get away with anything. This fell into that window. Yeah. So yes, the N-word is used repeatedly throughout this film, but it's not to be shocking or subversive. This movie takes something that many would find offensive and uses it as a weapon against racism, pointing out the silliness of it and how it's such a baseless and counterproductive way of living. Sheriff Bart is there to help this town and he has the same goals as they do. He's the only thing they have going for them and yet they hate him because of his skin color. And The film is very much about them realizing how dumb this is and overcoming their own prejudice. Mel Brooks wrote this film out of his own anger at white corruption, racism, and bigotry. While the film is a comedy, there is a lot more going on under the surface. I remember a friend of ours telling me about when they watched Blazing Saddles in a film studies course in college and he said that during the film, (laughs) I always love this, no one laughed during it because everybody he was afraid to. Uh. And in a way, the film points out another type of absurdity, which is that we're so obsessed with what you can and can't say now that we get wrapped up in specific words and we ignore the overarching reasons why those words are getting used. Brooks famously said to his writers, write anything you want because we'll never be heard from again. We will all be arrested for this movie. And I think that may be truer now than it was then. All right, so enough of the cultural commentary because this is a hilarious movie that is jam-packed with famous quotes and scenes, including this, Jim. What's your name? Well, my name is Jim, but most people call me Jim. <laughs> okay, Jim, since you are my guest and I am your host, what are your pleasures? What do you like to do? Oh, I don't know. Play chess. Screw. Well, let's play chess. 
and many, many others that I can't play on the show unless I want to get sued. One of my favorite moments in the movie is when the townspeople come up with the incredibly stupid and impractical idea of building a full-scale replica of their town as a diversion to the evil bandits. But they need more time to finish it. So to slow the bandits down, they put a toll booth in the middle of the desert that could easily be ridden around, but instead the bandits, led by the amazing Slim Pickens, stop everything they're doing and travel all the way back home to get quarters so that they can get through the toll. At the end of the film, all hell breaks loose when the fourth wall is broken down and the characters in the movie pour out of the confines of the story and onto the Warner Brothers backlot, disrupting the filming of other movies. It's an unusual ending, but one that makes sense as a film that set out to show the absurdity of racism had to have ended in the most absurd way possible. I think the problem with this movie is me and not it. I love it. I think it's, I, well, I don't love it. I think it's hilarious. And talking about it, I laugh more than watching it because watching it, I am so overwhelmed by everything that's going on. I feel like I'm just being like in a deluge of jokes <laughs> mm-hmm. that it, it's, it's actually a little bit too much for me. Hmm. And I, I want to be able to focus and I like can't focus because that yeah. in every like pixel of the screen, there's something going on and somebody's saying something and yeah, it's, it's there's, bonkers. There's a little bit of like Mooney Tune-ish to it and that it just goes wherever. I mean, there's... Well, and no sometimes too far. Yeah. Like, I, that's a, that's the thing about Mel Brooks movies. And sorry to interrupt you there, but, nah, but you, well, you're getting you're getting to a point though where he sometimes does things like he just takes so many risks throughout his movies, mm-hmm. and, so, and some of his movies are kind of terrible because the risks just don't work. And this right. is a movie where most of them, but again, not all of them, paid yeah. off. Yeah. There's some really dumb moments in this movie too, but for the most part, most of the jokes and risks hit exactly the way he had intended them to. Yeah. And Gene Wilder is yeah, Gene Wilder really yeah. always yeah. amazing. Well, the I mean, like the moment where they sing the Camp Town Ladies. That's at the, the other. Scene yeah. I wanted to, that I wanted to quit. And I don't know how much we can put in there, but yeah, he's, um, he's trying to get him to sing like this old fashioned, like Negro spiritual type stuff. And so they start singing. I get no kick from champagne. Some get a kick from cocaine. Hold it. Hold it. What the hell is that? Sh- but like even that joke, it says something. Yeah, it's right. Like, yeah, yeah, it's about like you think you've got you this think, group yeah. of people pegged, and you know nothing about them at all. And, right. that, yeah. and that's really what the film was trying to get across. So even his jokes play into the message he was trying to to get yeah. across with this film. There's there a moment too where like this to me like pinpoints the absurdity of it all better than any is when the white townspeople finally reluctantly give in to let there be black people, and they go, "All right, we'll give some land to the n's and the." Ch- but we don't want the Irish. <laughs> and it's like they just, they had to hate someone. Right, right, so they right. just went, they just blindly picked the Irish. Yeah. Like, okay. <laughs> and then finally goes, ah, oh, hell, we'll take the Irish too. <laughs> like, that's the moment where they finally learn the lesson that Brooks right. is trying to teach everyone who's watching the film. It's, yeah. it's hilarious. Yeah. It's often shown at like the Fox Theater over the summer. The Fox Theater is a big movie house, playhouse in Atlanta, and they'll show films during the summer. And Blazing Saddles comes on once every couple of years, and then it's shown at like just movie houses around. And I don't know if I'd be able to watch this in a big theater because you'd be afraid to laugh yeah it, it would be see that to me is its own interesting conversation which is like yeah. why am i so afraid to laugh at this movie now right and mel gibson wants us to laugh at the absurdity yeah. of it but then <laughs> mel gibson like, does? <laughs> i think oh, if anybody doesn't want you to it's Talk probably the mel ultimate gibson. faux pas there <laughs> Wait, mel brooks is never gonna hire me now <laughs> or mel gibson well, Huh. Anyway. Big gulps, huh? <laughs> 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 All 
Alrighty. What are you guys excited about? Here's what I'm excited about, guys. Prime has a lot of HBO shows. They've got one. Yeah, Amazon Prime. They've got one called Family Tree. Which is an Ooh, HBO show. Great show. Hudson still has my DVD of Ham Family yeah. Tree. It right. is a Christopher Guest show. Family Tree. Check it out. Interesting. I'm going to give you a really unexciting one. I'm really excited about sleep. I've been very ill lately, mm. and I cannot oh. wait to go to sleep. I love you, sleep. Oh. <laughs> Thanks for that ill communication. Zing. <laughs> I just started a new book, Neil Gaiman's The Ocean at the End of the Lane. It's a kind of magical realism, fantasy, adult kind of thing. It's like a small enough book that I could finish it in one sitting, but that's assuming I can stay in one <laughs> sitting long enough. But I'm excited to finish it. So I mean, you can it, finish it's, this, it's, the stand in one sitting. It's really good so far. Yeah. Have you stand sat for one sitting? <laughs> for six <laughs> months. <laughs> A couple of weeks ago, I my excited about was about this music festival that I go to. So at Big Ears this year, there's a, a film festival sort of component, and they're showing a bunch of Jonathan Demme films. So I'll get to see Silence of the Lambs and Stop Making Sense, the Talking Heads movie, in the theater, wow. which is going to be really, really cool. I pictured this Big Ears thing is taking place like in a field somewhere. No, Knoxville, like Tennessee, in the, in the 19th century, was an opera hub on the East Coast. And so there are beautiful... The river. Yes. Mm-hmm. There are beautiful, so. giant, old theaters that were opera houses. Yeah, we went there in seventh grade with school. Oh. Yeah, we know. <laughs> Apparently you don't. We know what's what. Well, That's all you got. well great, guys. I hope yeah. you enjoyed our funniest episode yet. All right, guys. Thanks for listening. We Thank will you. see you next week. Later on. Oh, hey, uh, guys. What, what are we talking about next week? Cross-dressing babysitters? A capitalistic high schooler. How about a milk-drinking assassin? Oh, I was really hoping that we could uh, talk about Winnie the Pooh on opium. I think we can we talk can. about all those. We can. Oh, oh, our favorite movie characters. Yeah. All our favorite yeah. movie characters. Perfect. Yeah. High five. What's up? This is President George W. Bush. Let us know how your list differs at, at Fight About Film on Facebook and Twitter or email us at fightaboutfilm at gmail.com. Please subscribe and leave a review on iTunes. Four Friends Fight About Film is produced by the Brothers Ray in Atlanta, Georgia. This episode was recorded and edited by Jordan Noel. Fool me once, shame on me. Fool me twice. Well, you, you're just you're not, you're not going to fool me twice. Your wardrobe all run down there. Is your lipstick all smeared? Are your stockings not sheer? Do they make your legs show off your hair? Do the tears on your pillow roll down there? you turn do they short out the blanket and make the sheets burn is your heart filled with pain will you come back again shop at Macy's and love me tonight I see a little silhouette of a man Scaramouche, Scaramouche, will you do the fandango? Thunderbolts and lightning, very, very frightening Galileo, 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 Figaro I'm just a poor boy, nobody loves me He's just a poor boy from a poor family Sparing his life from this monstrosity Whoa, Phil 
Phil, what are you doing here? You're partied out, man. Again. What if he honks in the car? I'm giving you a no-honk guarantee. <laughs> Phil, um, if you're gonna spew, spew into this. Easy come, easy go. Will you let me go? Pull over. Oh, oh man, uh, come on. Not again. He does this every Friday. Stop torturing yourself, man. You'll never afford it. Live in the now. It will be mine. Oh, yes. It will be mine. Yes.